Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. So I first, I guess I want to start um, by saying thank you uh, to Paul, who was the, the first one that I heard from the, the Florida Roundup, but then to everybody else. Uh, on the committee, everybody that's been so gracious, uh, inviting me here and welcoming me here. And, you know, I can remember, um, like, hearing, uh, especially at Florida Roundups, like, I, I would hear the speaker, and they'd get up and they'd say, like, oh, I want to thank, uh, you know, so-and-so, my host, and they've been so nice to me. And, and I'd sit there, and I'm like, it just sounds like this guy just, like, went and picked him up at the airport. Like, what, what, what's he been doing? Like, why is he so grateful for that? And uh, it's not. It's way beyond that. It's it's unbelievable how welcoming everybody here has been, and uh, and I just feel really lucky uh, to be here, and, and that you've asked me here tonight. And um, and Paul had a. I have to tell you, um, Paul had a very different. It was wonderful that he came and, and picked me up at the airport. It was very nice, but it was a very different experience than the person that came and picked me up at the airport eight years ago when I came to Fort Lauderdale in a in a blackout. And I have to tell you, I started drinking the night before I was supposed to get on the flight, and, uh, and which was pretty common. I was ner- flying made me nervous, so I had to like, you know, I had something to take the edge off. And uh, and so I dragged myself into a blackout. <laughs> I was nervous, and uh, and and I was I was going to some uh, fantasy fest or something in in Key West, and uh, and I had this outfit that I was going to wear that was like Greek mythology. Which is basically like a bed sheet with a hole cut in it, and then a, and then like a spray painted crown that I was going to wear around my head, and I didn't want the crown to be crushed in my suitcase, so I wore it. <laughs> and since I had the crown on, I might as well wear the whole outfit. So I've got the whole outfit on. This is what they tell me. I was in blackout, but uh, and I had also somehow ended up with the. You know when you're going through security and you're supposed to take all of your coins and stuff out and you put them in a little thing. And I took that with me, uh, and uh, and I get to Florida, and this is right about the time now that I'm coming, I'm sort of coming out of the blackout, and I'm in a wheelchair, which is which is was usual for me. When I flew, I usually was taken off the plane in a wheelchair. Sometimes I was put on the plane in a wheelchair, but very often I, I had to spend some amount of my time in the airport in a wheelchair because I just couldn't walk. Like it was easier for the people that were dealing with me, my friends. Uh, to uh, to just wheel me around because uh, because they could get to places quicker, right? <laughs> so so my friends had wheeled me out from the uh, get off the plane and they wheeled me out and they uh, and and then they left and I, I don't know exactly what happened again I was sort of coming out of the blackout right then and uh, and they left me and they and they went off they'd had they just had enough they couldn't do it anymore which is which was common if you spent any considerable amount of time with me you just had had enough. And, uh, and I remember I was there, and I have my bag on my lap, and there's this young couple. You know how you would see people when you were, like, really at your worst, and you would see people that just looked so normal? Like, they just looked like they knew how to live? And this was, like, this young, fresh-looking couple that had, like, just gotten off the plane, and they were probably on a honeymoon or a vacation or something. And they're there, and I'm sitting there in the wheelchair coming out of a blackout, and I'm trying to light a cigarette, 
and I've got a duffel bag on my lap with all my stuff in it. And, uh, and the, the duffel bag falls off my lap while I'm trying to light the cigarette. And I'm bending down out of the wheelchair. I'm trying to get the duffel bag. And this very nice, normal-looking guy with his girlfriend, he comes over to try to help me. And he comes over and he goes to bed. I said, get, I don't need your help. I don't need you. I'm trying to, I don't need this from you. I don't need anything from you. And uh, about 20 minutes later, my friend showed up with his truck. And he's going to give me a ride back to his place. And he pulls up the truck. And he said, Spencer, get, come here. Get in the truck. And I was like, I can't. He said, get in the truck. And I was like, I can't. He said, get in the truck. I was like, come here. So he comes over. He says, what? I said, come here. I said, I got to tell you something. He said, what? I said, those people over there think I'm really handicapped. I can't, I can't get up and just walk away from this wheelchair. <laughs> that was literally how my mind worked. That everything up, up until that moment had seemed perfectly normal for me. Like I've got a crown on my head and a sheet on my back and I'm in a blackout in a wheelchair in the airport. And that's fine. But don't let these people see the illusion I have created. <laughs> I have, I, I, that would be an offense to all handicapped people. <laughs> and I'm simply not willing to stoop that low. <laughs> and I'm lucky because I have a friend that he actually picked me up and carried me and put me in the truck. Uh, and then I don't think he spoke to me again for a while. But <laughs> uh, so, so, Paul, you didn't have that experience. So <laughs> I just walked. It was amazing. That's what sobriety has given me. <laughs> it's like I thought the promises were going to be so big and extraordinary. And it's just that I can actually get off a plane and walk to the car. So I guess, the, you know, the first thing uh, that I'd like to sort of start with is uh, to anybody that's new uh, to AA, if you're, if, if you're new to AA, welcome. Um, this, this place is, I mean, what we just did to you, I apologize for that. This, I promise, it's not usually like that. We don't usually make you stand up and then clap and shout things at you. Uh, but, but sometimes I guess we do. But welcome. Uh, I, I got... I was at the Florida Roundup my first year sober, and I, I came up here, uh, and I got my nine-month chip at the Florida Roundup, and, and I remember what it was like. Uh, that's why I was down here crying, because <laughs> I remembered what it was like to have nine months of sobriety and to walk across the stage and to look out at all of these people who had lives that looked like the kind of life that I wanted. And I thought for the first time in my life, I like, maybe, maybe I can have this. Maybe this is something that, that could be available to me too. And, uh, and I just want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for that experience. Um, the Florida Roundup has always been a really important part of my sobriety. And, uh, and there's so many people here that I know and have such uh, close relationships with and friendships with. And uh, there's a lot of guys here from D.C. that I know, which is where I got sober. And I'm grateful to all of you. And uh, there's a lot of guys from New York here, uh, which I love seeing you guys. And, uh, and you guys are such an important part of my sobriety. And, uh, and there's a lot of friends that I have in Florida uh, from the roundups and from other trips. And uh, I'm really grateful to all of you. Um, but when I got to AA, uh, I, didn't come, I didn't come willingly. I probably will end up, I got an hour to talk, so I'll probably end up telling you how I got here. But, uh, but I'll start by saying that when I got here, 
this place is real weird. Like AA is real strange. Because, because what you guys were saying to me didn't make any sense. What you were saying to me was that you had a solution to my problem. You had one solution. There is a solution. And it was God. What? <laughs> That's crazy. I don't have a boyfriend. <laughs> uh, I'm not famous. I don't have any money. Those are my problems. <laughs> I can't stop drinking. Uh, how is uh, th God, or whatever you're calling it, how is this going to be a solution to my problems? It doesn't make any sense. And that was the first thing that AA did. The first thing that AA did was they said, they said they had a solution to my problems, and then it was God. And the problem with that was that I didn't believe in God. So the solution that I was being offered was something that didn't make any sense to me. It was something that I didn't understand. And it was something, it was like you told me that I was going to die unless I believed in Santa Claus. I don't believe in Santa Claus. And knowing that I'm going to die because I don't isn't going to make me believe it. I mean, I can pretend really well if you want me to. Like, I could really pretend if that's, what, if that's what mattered. But I couldn't actually fake it. I couldn't actually change my mind. And the beautiful thing is that what I, what I was told when I got here is that I wasn't going to have to worry about any of that. That, in fact, I could stop thinking altogether. <laughs> That, it, that perhaps I was doing too much thinking. <laughs> and that maybe what I needed to do in order to stay sober was not to believe in God, but to have an experience of God. So instead of thinking, what I needed to do was I needed to act. I needed to take action. And so rather than having to change my mind about God, what happened was that I just followed the instructions that you gave me. I worked the steps. And as I worked the steps, something started to happen to me. I made this decision in the third step to turn my life and my will over to God. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even know what my will was. But I had willingness. I, I wanted it. I wanted what you guys had, so I did it. And as I worked the steps, as I, as I went through this process that you laid in front of me, what happened is that I was transformed. What happened is that, that God went from an intellectual concept to an experiential one. I started to no longer need to think about God or explain God or define God. I started to actually feel God. God went from my head to my heart. And so now I understand less about God than I ever have. I could define God less than I've ever been. In fact, when I have tried to explain God to people, my understanding of God, they look, I had a, a guy one time, he looked at me and he was like, you sound like an atheist. Because my, because my idea, it was so hard for me to put into words what my experience of this power, this phenomenon, this transcendent thing happening in my life was. It was so hard to put that into words, but I don't have to because it's happening to me. I know it. I can feel it. So, uh, we'll start at the beginning, right? 
Henry Swanson, he's my ninth great-grandfather. He came over on the Mayflower in 1621. I love how alcoholics sometimes start their story like, I was born in so-and-so, and I always want to upstage people. So I'm going nine generations back to Henry Swanson, who was the Mayflower. So this is the first, uh, the, the first English or whatever on, uh, on American soil, right? That's what I'm talking about, right? I'm going to upstage you. Come with, a, come with an earlier alcoholic than that. So... Uh, so Henry Swanson, and I think it's, I might get my history mixed up, but it's either Henry or it's his son, uh, is the, becomes the first tavern owner in the United States and is the first person, this, this is my heritage, the first person in the United States, well, it's not the United States, but the New World, uh, to be given a liquor license. Yeah, this is what I come from. He is also... Just wait for it. He is also the first person to have his liquor license revoked. <laughs> yes. Because of drunken behavior. These are my people. So then like a couple hundred years go by and I pop out and, uh, and I, I was raised by a, a beautiful, totally normal family. Uh, my parents, uh, neither one of them are alcoholic, and uh, and I had a very uh, lovely and like totally smooth upbringing. Uh, and I say that because I know that that a lot of people in AA and a lot of people in the world have had trauma in their childhood and in their lives. And uh, and when I came to AA, I needed to hear somebody say that uh, that they had had a totally normal upbringing. And it was important for me to identify with that. And so, I, uh, if if you haven't had a totally normal upbringing, that's a, that's I uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I got stuck on that sentence. I like all of a sudden I realized I didn't know what to say. Uh, that wasn't supposed to be condescending at all. No, I really mean that. Like, uh, now I just I'm just digging. Uh, but I did. I had like I had a totally normal childhood, and and I and I turned into a completely out of control, dysfunctional alcoholic. It was nobody's fault. I, I have no idea. I'm not. I'm not a scientist or a doctor. I have absolutely no answer for you as to why or how I became an alcoholic. If I was an alcoholic first and then I started drinking, or if I drank myself into being an alcoholic, it sure felt like I was an alcoholic when I had my first drink. It felt like it because I had the experience that they talk about in the big book, which is the phenomenon of craving. That as soon as I drank the first time, I had this experience of really wanting another drink. It was like I was taken over by some compulsion that was outside of myself. It was like I couldn't stop myself. I remember how old I was, I was 12 or 13 years old. And uh, I remember just drinking and like my face goes numb, you know, and like my lips were numb. And I just remember going, oh, this is amazing. Like... <laughs> And, uh, and it went on like that. It went on. And, uh, and, and I kept drinking, and I, um, and I got into a lot of trouble. You know, I was a very inventive drunk. And, uh, and I would always sort of find these ways to, uh, to get myself as much booze as possible. I remember going to um, this concert. I was 17 years old. And, uh, and I was going to this rock and roll show. It was a big stadium concert. And... Uh, and I just have to tell you, it's really weird. I mean, I love that I'm on a big screen and everything. It's really weird. To, I almost want them to turn on the lights because nobody's looking at me. You, you guys are all, 
you guys are all like looking. Look, I'm like, look, I'm up here. Look at me. And then I, and then I realize that you are looking at me just over there. Uh, so it's okay. You can keep looking at the screens, but I, I gotta, I'll just stare at the ground or something. So I get distracted. Why are these people staring off into space? Isn't, I mean, I know my story's not as good as that lady last night, man. But, uh, but I'm trying. Give me a, cut me some slack. Uh, all right, so where was I? So here I'm, I'm trying to get to this rock and roll show, right? And I really want to get wasted at this show. And it's like 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm, I'm pretty drunk already. And, uh, and I'm 17, so I can't buy any booze in there, and, and they're going to they're gonna search me when I go in, so it's, it's hard to get in the, the booze. And so what I do is I, uh, I buy a big, long plastic tube. It's like six-foot tube, right? And that, a six-foot plastic tube... Uh, of a certain diameter, actually holds a half gallon of vodka in it. So I fill this thing with a half gallon of vodka, and I put a cork in either end, and then I wrap it around my body, and I tie it to myself with shoelaces. (laughs) And then I put my shirt over top of it, and I walk right into that concert. That's brilliant, right? I wish I had put that kind of effort into my 10th grade geometry class. (laughs) I may have gotten a better education. Uh, but I got in, and uh, and I was prepared to be, uh, you know, the generous alcoholic that I was and share this half gallon with everybody. But somebody said something to me that was never the thing that you should say to me. They said, why would you do that? You're such an idiot. What are you going to do, drink the whole thing? Oh, yeah? Maybe I am. You couldn't drink that. That's crazy. Nobody could drink that. Oh, yeah? Hold it up. And uh, and I laid down on the ground, and I put one end of the tube in my mouth, and they held the other end up, and I chucked just about as much of it as I could. I don't think most of it landed on my, uh, you know, on my face, but uh, but I did drink a lot of it, and uh, and I had fun for about fifteen minutes, <laughs> and then uh, and then I went face first into the ground, and I cut a gash uh, across my forehead and down my nose, and I was covered in blood, and and my friends that I was with who actually, uh, turns out, was one of the same friends that was with me later when I came to Fort Lauderdale Black. I don't know why she stuck around that long. But, uh, but I, they took me to the, to the paramedics, and um, the emergency tent or whatever. And I don't remember anything after that. I'm in a blackout. I have a, a vague memory of uh, being pushed in a gurney and going into the back of the ambulance, but that happened more than once to me in my life. And I have sort of combined those memories into this, like, this sort of vague, like, paramedics over top of you and lights going and stuff like uh that's sort of all just one experience even though i know it happened multiple times uh and so i get rushed to the hospital and i wake up uh, and i'm strapped to the bed and i've got uh ivs in my arm and uh and i have ripped them out so my arms are covered in blood and i guess i'd ripped them out before they strapped me down that's why they strapped me down and uh and I have a huge bandage on my on my face, and my parents are standing at the end of the bed, and my mom's crying. And uh, they couldn't figure out what was under the bandage, and they they pulled the bandage back, and they uh, my mom said, "What what happened to his face?" And the people at the hospital said, "Well, we didn't we didn't have time to even look at what had happened to his face because we were reviving him uh, in, in the ambulance, and uh, and his body was going into shock, and so." Uh, we didn't do anything superficial. Uh, so so I was in a place where uh, the bloody mess on my face was less important to them than keeping my heart going. Um, 
And I would love to tell you that that was the last time that I had a drink. Uh, but unfortunately, what I was about to find out over the next eight years of my drinking was what powerlessness means. See, because when I got to AA and you guys explained powerlessness, I thought that I understood what you were talking about. I thought that when you said powerless, what you were talking about was that feeling that I had had the very first time I had a drink, the feeling of the, the, the compulsion, the phenomenon of craving, this, this physical sensation that would overcome me. So I said, absolutely, I'm powerless. That's it. When I start drinking, I can't stop. I totally get that. Yeah, I'm powerless. And then somebody said, that's not the problem. The problem is that you have the first drink. The problem is that sober, with nothing in your system, and with everything you know about what alcohol has done to you, you still somehow find it a good idea to pick up a drink. That's powerlessness. I'm powerless over the first drink. So here I am, 17 years old, and uh, I, I, get out of the, uh, I get out of the hospital, and my parents uh, put me in the minivan, and they're driving me home, and they're uh, sort of giving me a lecture. And I had just that week moved out of my parents' house, and I moved into my own place, and I just signed a lease on my, on my first place. I just graduated from high school. And, uh, and I told my parents, I, I want to go back to that concert. And they said, no, you can't go back to that concert. What are you, crazy? And I said, I'm going back to that concert. And I opened the door of the van on the highway. And, uh, and I said, if you don't take me back to that concert, I'm going to jump out of the van. And that's, that's terrorism. That's terrorism. I mean, the kind of, can you imagine picking your son up at the hospital after he nearly dies from alcohol poisoning? And then him threatening to jump out of the van. I can't even imagine what my parents had to go through. So, uh, so anyways, I, the, I, I get bored with all the rest of the hospitals. So there was a bunch more hospitals and some uh, police. And, uh, and, and it all sort of ends up uh, this one weekend, right? I go on a camping trip down to... Uh, uh, I'm in southwestern Pennsylvania on this camping trip. And uh, and with all, like, uh, we're going whitewater rafting with all these friends. And uh, I, <laughs> this story kills me. <laughs> so I get wasted, right? Like Friday night, we're supposed to go, we're supposed to go uh, whitewater rafting on Saturday. And I'm wasted, like I'm going to blackout. Friday night, and I wake up still drunk Saturday morning, and I go to get on the on, in the raft, and the guy, the rafting guide, is like, "No, no way! Like you can't, you can't get in the raft. You're, you're a disaster." I'm like, "You son, I'll do whatever I want. You son of a bitch!" Like, ah. And so I go running into the water, and I'm like swimming out, like I'm gonna go down the rapids. You can't stop me. <laughs> and. Uh, and, they, and the guide has to come out in a kayak and throw me over the front of the kayak and paddle me back in. And when he gets me out of the water, I'm like, fight, I'm fighting this guy, right? So they do what anybody would do in that situation. They call the police. So the police get there, and I pissed. Like, how dare you? And this cop comes, and I just go for him. Like, right at him. I rush him. 
This guy's like this, right? So uh, I guess I don't know if I tried to bite him. I, this, it all it all gets a little fuzzy. But uh, next thing I remember, I am naked uh, in the prison shower with my hands up against the wall, and I'm being sprayed down, and I'm covered in delousing powder. Now I have had in my life a prison shower fantasy. <laughs> This was not it. <laughs> this was not it. And I remember looking at the guy, at the, at the prison guard, and I remember the look of pity and disgust that was on his, that perfect combination of pity and disgust that only an alcoholic can get. And I remember them putting me in the orange jumpsuit and they put my, uh, they shackled my hands and my feet because I was a threat. I was dangerous. And, uh, and I said, I want to, I, I want to call my lawyer. And they said, oh, you declined your right to an attorney. When? This morning in court. What? I didn't go to court. Yes, when you told the judge to fuck himself. <laughs> So I'm going to get locked up. So, so I'm in my orange jumpsuit, and I've got the shackles on my hands and feet, and, and I've got this blonde mohawk right right down the center. And, uh, and I'm walking down the aisle, or whatever they call it in jail. Somebody here knows. It's a room full of alcoholics. <laughs> Somebody, somebody's about to call it, that's the corridor, or whatever. The, the gauntlet. Uh, so I'm walking down the row of whatever, and... Uh, these guys are calling out to me, like, hey, Tomahawk, Tomahawk, what you in here for? The cop, the, he bit a cop. Oh, shit, Tomahawk crazy. <laughs> so here I am, crazy Tomahawk, walking down the aisle. And they're about to put me in the cell. And I have a realization. And I, I, there is, there's something about being an alcoholic that things improve with time, right? So my memory, I will be quite honest with you, my memory of this uh, is definitely different probably than what actually happened to me. I'm not saying that I just made that up. But I'm saying that there is a level of clarity that I have about what happened to me that I didn't exactly have at the moment. But I remember having this one thought, and it was, I deserve to be here. I'm supposed to be here. And what I realized was that there is not two kinds of jails. There's not jails for bad people who have done bad things, and then other jails for good people who have accidentally done bad things when they're drunk which was the category that I would like to be included in. <laughs> and now that I'm sobering up, I'd like to talk rationally and sanely as an adult and make some, uh, get myself out of this particular situation that I got into. It was an accident. And I realized that like, there's just one jail and I'm going to it because I belong there. That's where I'm supposed to be. So I got to back this story up a little bit. Right before they walked me down the aisle, uh, they had given me one phone call. I had declined my right to an attorney, but I did have one phone call. And the phone call that I had made was to my parents. 
Now, what had happened in this interesting twist of fate in the universe is that the night before I was arrested, my brother and I had gotten into a fight. He had been on the camping trip with me, and he had stormed off. He had gotten in the car, and he had driven home to my parents' house. And my brother lives out on the West Coast, and so it wasn't often that my brother was, was on the East Coast and staying with my family, but he was there that weekend. And, and he went home to my parents' house, and he said to my parents when he got there on Saturday, he said, uh, I think Spencer has a problem, and I think that we need to, to do something about it. And my parents said something, uh, which they often said, uh, which was, you know, I think he's just going through a, a, like a phase. Like, I, I think, I mean, I, yeah, he has been drinking a lot, but, but I think, you know, it's just this, it's the new job and this transition. Um, and in the moment that they were sitting there having that conversation, I called from jail. And I said, Mom, I, I, I got a problem. Now, my problem that I had at that moment was that I needed $500 bail. <laughs> but it was enough that those two moments came together. It was enough to, uh, to give my family the inspiration they needed to sit me down and to have an intervention. And, and they sat me down, and they had an intervention, and I would not, would not, absolutely, no way, not a chance, go to AA. And the reason that I would not go to AA is because uh, I did not want to be brainwashed by a cult. You were a cult, and I didn't want you brainwashing me. Uh, that is what I found out later is called contempt prior to investigation. I actually knew nothing about AA. And, uh, and what eventually happened to me when I showed up in AA was that I saw that it was very different than a cult. I mean, if AA was a cult, it is the most poorly run cult that I have, that I have, have ever seen. I mean, it, I, I have just recently started to get into general service. I'm a, I'm a GSR for my group. This is a funny aside. Oh, thank you. Yes, that was three people. That was as many as come to the meetings. Uh, it's good. It makes voting easy. I think that's one of the concepts, right? We get like this, uh, the concepts is like we're elected and elected officials can vote. And, and I, yeah, anyways, nobody knows this because we don't study the 12 concepts, but that's okay. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't mean, that was like preachy. I didn't mean to be preachy about that. I, I can't even read the 12 concepts. I don't understand them. So... Uh, Okay, so this is an aside, and hopefully I remember where I was in the story. But um, I uh, was looking for a home group in New York. Uh, I had been to a lot of meetings in New York, and I had found a meeting that I really loved, but it was in the middle of the day, and I couldn't go anymore. So some friends and I decided to start the same uh, formatted meeting in the evenings when we could all go. We start this meeting, and uh, as we start the meeting, what happens is that I become, there's only a few of us, there's a handful of us, so I become the overall chair of the meeting which is fantastic. I'm like coordinating the lease and, and all this stuff and, uh, you know, doing the bylaws. And it's really exciting to be part of a new meeting. Uh, if you don't have a meeting that you like, start one. It's a beautiful thing about AA that we're completely autonomous and we can do whatever we want. Um, so we started this meeting and I was the overall chair and we get about a year into the meeting and all of a sudden there's a lot more people that are showing up to the business meetings and a lot more people have opinions and a lot more people have ideas and we start having elections and and, uh, and we go to have uh, elections, and one of the, the, the roles that's being elected is overall chair. I said, well, that's interesting that you guys think there should be a new overall chair. I would like to just suggest that I stay as overall chair 
because of this 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 lease situation we're in, there's a there's a couple of things here that I think are very uh, very fragile. Like we don't want to disrupt this lease. It's New York space is important, and uh, so why don't I stay on as overall chair, just for like another six months or or a year, until we've really solidified, and then. And uh, they, on the spot, voted me out of overall chair <laughs> and into the role of GSR, which is a two-year commitment. So they have effectively put me out of the running for president until another two years at least. Uh, and I'm grateful for it. I'm absolutely grateful for it. And uh, sometimes we have to be reminded that, uh, that we are a part of a whole and that uh, I remember my, my first position I had as secretary of this group in D.C., and uh, I forgot to go to the meeting. It was a 7.30 a.m. meeting, and I forgot to show, I just forgot to show up. And I called my sponsor about 15 minutes after the meeting started, and I said, oh, my God, what, what am I going to do? And all these people, and they're all there, and what are they going to do? There's no secretary. And he's like, yep, AA is going to go on without you. <laughs> what a relief. Until I got to AA, I carried the burden of the entire world on my shoulders. Uh, and so I'm glad to have set that burden down. Um, so anyways, uh, I have no idea why, why I started talking about being a GSR, but uh, what, what was I talking about? Uh, you're a cult? You know what? When God is speaking through you sometimes, it just uh, it's like you have no part in it. Like, I have literally no recollection what I've told you guys. I should just start at the beginning. Hi, I'm Spencer. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> oh, this is so amazing. Okay, I'll just start somewhere else. It was fun. So, oh, yeah, the intervention. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, so they have the intervention, and I end up in AA. And I sort of started this, this part of the story already, uh, what happened to me when I got to AA. I, I heard somebody say one time that AA does essentially three things. That AA makes us aware of our powerlessness. That's the first thing that AA does. Uh, it's the first step in the 12 steps. Uh, and we have to come to this understanding of what it means to be powerless. And I mean not just powerless that, that I will continue to drink once I start, but I mean powerless that, that without some power in my life, what will happen to me is that I will, uh, there will be a curious mental blank spot, that I will find some reason somehow, some way to get myself drunk. And once I realize that I am powerless, the second thing that AA does for me is it presents me with a solution to that problem, which is to find a power. Find a power that I can believe in, that can restore me to sanity, that can get in between me and that insane idea of a drink. And I talked a little bit about that. The third thing that AA does is it gives me a way to get from powerless to a place where I am plugged into this power. It gives me a, a system, a design for living that moves me from being a person who is powerless to a person who is connected to God with conscious contact. I have been restored to sanity so that I no longer think it's a good idea to drink. Now what's amazing about this is that it's just a daily reprieve. That means that if I stop being consciously connected, who knows what's going to happen? It's anybody's game. If I pull the plug out of the wall, the toaster probably won't work. So AA becomes the place where it is easiest for me to stay connected. 
the steps become the best method that I've found to stay connected. AA isn't a monopoly on spirituality, on God. AA is not a monopoly on recovery from alcoholism and addiction. I mean, you could get sober any way you want. The point is that, that there have been a lot of people that have done this a certain way, and as a result of doing it, they have had an experience. And what's awesome about that for me is that I got to show up and just do what you guys were telling me to do. I just had to show up and have the experience. And one of the things that's been so magical, I know, like, um, so when I got sober, I, uh, I had, uh, I had an amazing, uh, my first sponsor is an amazing guy named Marlon. And, um, he's somebody who is uh, very dear to my heart and a really good friend. And, um, and I just talked to him actually tonight before I came out here and, uh, he brought me to my first Florida roundup and, uh, and Marlon took me through the steps. Now there's something about Marlon. Those of you, probably a lot of you know him, but, uh, but there's something about Marlon, uh, that for those of you that don't know him, he is this, uh, like beautiful floating, gentle spirit. He's this native American man who's, uh, who, who just carries himself. He's got long flowing hair and he just like carries himself with this like beautiful. And he took me through the steps, uh, without, I mean, we read the big book. I knew what it was, but, but we, he just sort of, it was like, he just knew it. It was just like coming out of him. And, uh, I remember when we did my fifth step together with this whole ceremony and I, I, uh, I like read my fourth step to him and then I ripped it up and I put it in this bowl in the middle of his floor and lit it on fire. And he was like singing this Native American chant and I was singing and we were crying. And it was like the most magical transformational experience I've ever had in my life. I have not found that anywhere in the big book, those, the instructions for that, that, that ceremony. But it was totally, I mean, it changed my life. It was beautiful. But what happened was that, uh, that I got a couple of years sober and I was having this, I was on fire, right? So I would, I would be at meetings and I'd be like, everything's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. And people would say like, uh, can you sponsor me? I'd say, yeah, totally, let's have dinner, let's like talk about this. And they'd be like, great, what should I do? And I'd be like, it's amazing. <laughs> and they'd be like, yeah, but what should I do? And I'm like, it's amazing. That's like, that's all I got. <laughs> You should, uh, I don't know, you got anything we could light on fire? <laughs> and, uh, and then I had another experience. And the experience that I had was that uh, I got a sponsor, David. And, uh, and David is uh, a, a beautiful man, and I thought, was the complete opposite in some ways of Marlon. Not, not, in a, not that I was looking for the complete opposite, but, but I just, in those superficial characteristics, like uh, David was this young, white, straight guy from New York. Right? He looked on the outside very different from Marlon. They met about a year after I had been working uh, with David, and, and I was, they were at a party that I was having, and the two of them met, and I didn't see them for a long time. And I came over, and I discovered that they had been sitting on the couch next to each other just talking the entire time. And they looked at me, and they said, Spencer, do you know that we are essentially the same person? <laughs> and they, they, they pretty much are, but uh, in a beautiful way. And, uh, and, and David took me through the big book. And, uh, and as he took me through the book, what I realized was that, that in the book, 
it explained not only the experience that I'd had when I was drinking, but it also explained the experience that I was having while I was sober. It was like I was looking at a roadmap of a place that I had been. Like I sort of knew my way around. You know, I was like living in sobriety and I, and I kind of got it. Like I, I knew where some familiar points were. But all of a sudden I was looking at a map. And the thing about that map is that before I had the map, the best I could do for somebody else was I could say, yeah, 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 no, there's something amazing. It's like down, I don't really know where it is, but it's like down that way and take a left and another left and I think and then something else and you might find it. But when I had a map, what I was able to do was I was able to walk people through the experience that I had had. I was able to take people through the experience that I had. And so what happened is that I started sponsoring people and I started watching them transform. I started watching people uh, just, I, I watched the lights come on. And that's an experience unlike any I've ever had in my entire life. The only thing for me that's been more profound than, than sharing my fifth step with a sponsor was listening to the fifth step of somebody else. To feel that, that uh, immense amount of trust and responsibility that someone that someone puts into you is a beautiful gift. And uh, I can remember, um, you know, one of my uh, one of my the first guys that I got the the great opportunity to work with, this guy named Robert. And uh, Robert was uh, in D.C. and uh, he had he had had a life that was very unlike mine. I mean. I think I think I'm sort of I wanted to be like either a low bottom drunk or a high bottom drunk, and unfortunately I think I'm that that one thing that alcoholics can't wrap their mind around. I'm average. I'm just like kind of like middle of the road drunk, and uh, and Robert wasn't like Robert had a story, and uh, and he had lived a life that was like beyond like I, I couldn't even. He would tell me these things that had happened to him, and I was like, what? That's crap. what? And, uh, and I, I was kind of scared of him. I mean, he kind of made me nervous. I was a young kid, and, um, and, but, I, but I was taking him through the steps. And so we got to the third step. And, uh, and as we were doing the third step, we were in my living room. And I had, up until that point in my sobriety, I had uh, only prayed alone and when I prayed alone, I'd prayed on my knees. But any other time I prayed, like with other people, I had never prayed on my knees. Um, and I, I thought it was kind of awkward. And so we get to, to, to the part in the book where we're going to do the third step prayer. So Robert and I are going to read the third step prayer. And I had a moment of fear. I felt like, gosh, I don't know if I can, I don't know, this guy's like, he's lived his life. Like, he's kind of cool. Like, I, I, feel like a, I feel like a dork. Like, hey, do you, do you want to get on your knees and like say this prayer together? <laughs> And, uh, and like, I just felt weird. I didn't want to do it. And, uh, and I, and I don't know what, what happened, but I, but I just, the words came out of my mouth. I said, Robert, let's get on our knees and say this prayer. And we got on our knees and, uh, it was just one of those things where, uh, the way that he, where he knelt in the room just happened to be exactly lined up with a spot on the wall where the sun was coming through this one small window that we had up in the corner of the room. And so as he said the prayer, the sun came, and I'm not making this up, I swear, I wish I was. The sun came out from behind a cloud, and as he said the third step prayer, this shaft of light flooded over his body, 
and he was illuminated with the sunlight of the spirit. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and Robert wrote me a note. Uh, it was about, I don't know, maybe it was like a couple months later, and he said, he said, I just want to thank you for that experience. Because when I knelt there and I said that prayer and the sunlight, uh, and the sunlight hit my face, he said it was, it was, I felt like I was being introduced to God. I felt like in that moment, a connection to God that I had never felt in my life before. And I got a call from Robert about three months later that, uh, that he had gone to the doctor and he had found out that he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And, uh, he was in hospice care and uh, that he was going to die any day. And what he said to me, uh, it's not that funny. <laughs> no, it's okay. I just didn't know what to do. It was just awkward because he laughed right at this like, really emotional <laughs> moment. <laughs> no, it's okay. Oh, that was weird. Uh, <laughs> so this just became a funny story. No, it's not funny. So then he dies. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And, um, and he said to me, uh, in that phone call, he said, uh, Spencer, I just have to tell you that, that, um, I want to thank you because, because I don't know why I got sober nine months before I died. And I have no idea why the timing of my life has happened the way it's happened. But, uh, but I don't think that I would be having the experience I am having now unless I had been connected to God in the way that I'm connected. And I want to thank you for making that introduction. And what I realized in that moment, and maybe I'd always known it, but what it really sunk in was that what allows me to be of service to other people is when I am free of what I think about myself. That that moment would have been completely different if I had not wanted to look cool in front of him. Like if I had let that fear that gripped at my heart, stand in the way of being of service to somebody else, that neither one of us would have gotten to have the experience that we had. And so what happens is my responsibility in AA is to be free, not because it's good for me, but because it's good for you. Because when I'm free, I get to be of service to you. I get to be available for you. And that, being of service, being useful, has been, has been the, the most rewarding gift that I've ever gotten. I had a, um, uh, another, uh, another sponsee um, who I worked with uh, once I moved to New York. And this was a guy who, was, uh, who reminded me actually a lot of Robert. And um, he'd had a lot of trouble staying sober. And he, uh, well, he was a crystal meth addict. And if there's anybody that is a crystal meth addict, I, didn't, I did not use crystal meth. It's not part of my story. But um, it's a beast. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, I mean, alcohol completely destroyed my life, and I don't think that, that alcohol is a gentle animal. But crystal meth is unlike anything that I have ever witnessed. And the devastation that it that it brings in people's lives. Um, but I also know from experience that no matter how powerful crystal meth is, that God is more powerful. 
So, uh, so this, this uh, sponsee, Bowden, uh, and I are working together, and we're working the steps, and, uh, and I'm, I'm seeing, like you see in a sponsee, like the lights are coming on, right? And, um, and then something happens. He doesn't show up. He misses a, a, misses a meeting. He misses another one. Then I hear, like, God, I think he's, I, I heard he might have gone out. And you know that feeling, like you call, you call somebody, and their phone is off, or you call, and then you call them again, and the, the message, the mailbox is full, and you send them a text, and you don't hear anything back. And uh, I was at the Florida Roundup. This was two years ago, and I was at the Friday night meeting, and it was about five minutes before the meeting started, and I was uh, had just taken my seat, and I was ready for the meeting to start, and somebody walked up to me, and they said, uh, "We just got a call from New York." And Bowden jumped out of a window on the 14th floor, and he's dead. And there is no place that I would rather be to get that devastating news than a room full of alcoholics who understand what that's like. And I have to tell you that, that uh, not only the Florida Roundup, but this meeting, the Friday night meeting in particular, held me in a way that I have never been held before. When I needed you most, you have been there for me. And that's such a gift. It's such a gift that we get that we don't have to do this thing alone. Um, God, there's so many stories I want to tell. All right. Let me think. Um, you know, I think that uh, I have this metaphor no, I'm going to start with something else. I'll come back to the metaphor. Remind me. Just shout out metaphor later on if I forget. Uh, so I was, I was about a year and a half sober. And I had, um, I, I was, I didn't have a boyfriend. I just cut right to the chase. Uh, and I, for the first year, I was cool with that. And, and then as soon as I hit that year mark, I was like checking my watch. Because I was like, listen, God, that I now believe in. Uh, I, I thought this was part of the deal. I thought like uh, I got sober, I did all this stuff for you, and then you were going to get me a boyfriend. I found out later that's called spiritual entitlement. And... Uh, and so there I am in meetings, and I am furious. And I'm letting people know, I'm lonely. I'm lonely. I'm just yelling, I'm lonely. And you might have this experience. If you're at 18 months sober, you might be feeling the same thing that I felt. You want things to be really different than they are. They are just not working out the way you'd like them to. And uh, this guy pulled me aside after the meeting, and he said, uh, so what's the problem? I said, I'm lonely. He said, uh, why don't you just stop being lonely? I said, what? Did you hear what I said? I don't have a boyfriend. That's why I'm lonely. He said, why don't you just stop being lonely? I said, if, you, if I got a boyfriend, then I wouldn't be lonely. He said, why don't you just stop being lonely? I'm like, I, dude, I, I, don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can do this again. I don't have a boyfriend, so I'm lonely. 
He's like, why don't you just stop being lonely? I said, because that would mean I don't want a boyfriend. What? I like heard myself say it. That would mean I don't want a boyfriend. He said, oh, well, then you're probably not going to stop being lonely. Because you want everybody to know that you want a boyfriend. And you want to remind yourself that you want a boyfriend. So not only are you not going to stop being lonely, but you're going to wallow in it. You're going to walk around waving your lonely flag. Because the lonelier you are, the more you will be reminded that you want to be loved. And it was in this moment that I really started to understand what the sixth and seventh step mean. That willingness to be free of these things means I've got to stop using them. Right? How am I going to be free of loneliness if loneliness is the thing that I'm using to remind myself that I want to be loved? Loneliness serves me too important of a purpose. Loneliness means that I want to be loved. And if I stop being lonely, then how am I going to know that I want to be loved? So what I had to realize, what I had to recognize, was that my desire to love and be loved existed in me beyond my loneliness. Now, he did this, this little experiment with me. I'll do it with you guys. So uh, close your eyes. And put your right hand out. Okay, now flip your hand over. And flip it back over. Flip it again. Flip it again. Okay, everybody did that pretty good, right? Keep your eyes closed. Now put your hand on your heart. So you're able to follow pretty simple instructions. So uh, stop your heart from beating. (laughs) Has anybody got it yet? You can't. You can't because there is a power within you that you cannot stop. The force of life within us is a power greater than our control. I can't help but want to love and be loved. That's it. That's my truth. When I shed away all of the other junk that stands in the way of that, I just simply am a person who wants to love and be loved. Loneliness, fear that I'll never be loved, envy of somebody else's relationship, all of those things are just useless tools of self-reliance. I am using these things to do a job that's already done. Loneliness is useless. Because I already am a person who wants to love and be loved. The best part about the steps for me is that they have not added anything. They have taken away. It's been a shedding, a removal. It's like a construction project. They have dismantled me. And what they've uncovered is the truth. The metaphor. So God shows up to your party. You're having a big party, right? And God shows up. You open the door, God's there, and he's got a cake. And you're like, God, what? This is so crazy. (laughs) I, like, totally didn't think so. I would have put out the different towels. Uh, And God walks in and hands you this cake, and somehow, as God hands you this cake, what starts going on in your mind is, 
oh my, I need a cake. I've got to have a cake, 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 cake. Something said cake. And you run into the kitchen and you start taking big chunks of this cake and you put it into a mixing bowl and you're mixing it up and you're pouring in flour and you're pouring in milk and you're cracking eggs and it is a disaster. There's flour all over the place and you're crying and you're like stirring up this cake batter and I got to make this cake and you're taking huge chunks of this cake and you're throwing it in and God walks in the kitchen and God says, what are you doing? He said, I'm making the cake. You came and I remembered about the cake and I've got to make the cake. And God said, the cake was already made. All you had to do was serve it. Yeah. But then what was I supposed to tell people when they asked me who made the cake? See, the moment I can't imagine as an alcoholic is standing there in front of the person that I've served the cake to and they say, this is delicious cake. Did you make it? No. I want credit. I want to take credit for my goodness. I want to take credit for the beautiful creation that I am. So when I'm using fear and loneliness and regret and envy and shame and all of those useless tools, what I'm getting to do is I'm getting to take credit for the great person I become. And the reality is that God has already made me perfect. That there is nothing I need to add or do. That my self-worth is non-negotiable. That I am good. And I know that because I have nothing to do with it. My goodness is not my doing. What a relief. And so my journey gets to be, rather than trying to uh, summon up my own self-worth. I just get to destroy all of the things that stand in the way of me already knowing it. There's a, uh, the primary purpose in AA, which when I first heard it, to stay sober and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety, wah, wah. I was like, Really? I am 25 years old, and I have got plans for this world. <laughs> and y'all are telling me that my new primary purpose is to just to stay sober and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. But then I really took on what that means. I am an alcoholic, powerless over alcohol. I'm a hopeless drunk. Without a transformative spiritual experience, without a daily reprieve, conscious contact from a higher power, I'm going to get drunk. So in order to stay sober, I have got to be constantly engaged in a mind-blowing spiritual experience. Well, now that sounds like a better deal. And i got to share it with other people. And I'm so grateful that you guys have given the opportunity to me to share it with you tonight. So thanks for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.